Well, hello, everybody. My co-host, Hazuri, and I have an incredible guest for you, and we're honored to have him join us today to talk about mental health and wellness, primarily in sports, but we'll be talking about a couple of other things today. Today, we're joined by Dr. Mina Murhome. Dr. Murhome is a Columbia-trained, board-certified psychiatrist. He's an assistant professor of psychiatry at Columbia University, where he teaches public psychiatry fellows. He's a national speaker on mental health and wellness, and he's also a consultant for the Mental Health and Wellness Initiative of the NBPA, which is the National Basketball Players Association, where he works with NBA players and staff with any mental health needs. Thank you so much for the intro. I'm so excited to be with you today. We're so excited to have you and what an impressive background. Really happy that you're joining us today, especially since June is Men's Health Month. There's clearly a lot to talk about. So let's talk. Let's do it. Welcome to Being Me, Dr. Merholm. So we like to start our Being Me podcast by asking us to tell us a little bit about teenage Mina. Were you confident? Were you shy? Mm -hmm. Did you participate in school activities, sports? What was teenage Mina like? What a fun beginning. It's good to reflect on teenage Mina. So I grew up in Staten Island, New York, which for anyone listening, Staten Island is, we are now on the map thanks only to Pete Davidson. So just shout out to that, to Pete for uh, reminding the world who we are. Teenage Mina, I was really into basketball. I was on the basketball team, but I was also somewhat reserved, I guess, as we all are in, the, in our teens trying to figure out who we really are, like what's important. So sports became a part of my identity kind of figuring out like being with the guys, playing ball was like a place I felt comfortable, really enjoyed also like taking in the two things I would say in our neighborhood that are of quality, which is pizza and bagels, but never combining the two. Pizza bagels, I think was a big no-no for us, but pizza was solid and bagels were solid. So I think food and sports were a big part of my teenage years, along with obviously like time with friends in that context was everything in a lot of ways. It all sounds really interesting, except for what about the little pizza bagel bites? I used to have those after school. <laughs> um, it's cool if you have to, but I'm just saying there is a code to pizza. There is like a sacredness to pizza if you're like from oh. New York City. So we're careful with stuff like that. You know. All right. Pizza that's bites. fair. That's fair. I think outside of New York, we'll, we'll take what we can get. That's punchable. Right. That's punchable. No, speaking of sports, I'd love to ask you a little bit about the work that you do with the NBA and the Players Association. What are some of the unique stressors and challenges that they experience as professional athletes and what types of tips or guidance do you share with them? Yeah, no, that's a good question. In general, right now, the landscape of mental health in sports has shifted so much over the past couple of years. Thanks a lot in part to sort of public advocacy from folks that you've worked with, right? Like Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan and things like that, who were able to make it more mainstream that, hey, just because I'm an athlete and I make a couple of million bucks and I have all this, you know, the life doesn't mean I'm immune to mental illness. So that public narrative began to change. And the thing that I think a lot of us as either as fans or as just the casual person who turns on TV from time to time may not always realize is the majority of the NBA is not superstars. There's only a handful of those guys. There's one LeBron, right? Yeah. There's only a handful of people who are just on top of the world. A lot of people are really grinding, struggling, trying to like make it trying to get into a rotation, trying to get into a roster, bouncing between the G League or the European League or things like that. So all that to say is that on TV, just like, I guess, much of life, right? Like when we look at friends of ours on Instagram, their life looks super glamorous and easy, but athletes are the same as a lot of them. It's not just glamour and ease. A lot of it is really a grind. So when they struggle with that, sort of share 
their hurt or their sort of difficulties with providers or professionals like myself, it's taking a step back and saying, hey, these are people who are just working really hard and having a tough time, really much like the rest of us. So that's when we start to get into maybe some of the tips. I don't want to talk for too long here, but that's in terms of framing like the problem or kind of what it's like for them. Yeah. It's that they're much more ordinary than we think. Well, they're people at the end of the day, right? And I think that's just kind of coming back to how we all have these things in common and that anyone as a person faces stress and might be in situations where they need to use certain tools to kind of help take care of themselves and their mental health. It just helps us realize that no one's immune from that. No one is spared. Definitely. And a lot of ways that encourages us that here's somebody I see on TV who looks superhuman, yeah. right? They're like superhuman strength or stamina or ability, but they struggle with the same stuff I do. What guidance have you shared with athletes from your experience? Yeah, I think one of the biggest starting points that we talk about is balance. A lot of times when you're a professional athlete, much like, let's say, if you were to be just really great at your craft in whatever stage, right? Whether you're in finance or even in medicine and you just get, you can be absorbed by the craft. So being able to take a step back and say, all right, because you're still a person, <laughs> because you're still a human and this machine that you're trying to optimize can't just work if you get absorbed or sucked in by one thing. So let's take a step back to the balance of your life and see, are the basic things about your, the elements of your life socially, emotionally, even spiritually in terms of meditation or things like that. That's why you have someone like LeBron, for example, who would become a spokesman for a meditation app because really the mind is a part of your performance as an athlete. So we spend a lot of time on saying, okay, you're already diligent about your workouts, you're diligent about how you keep your body in physical shape, but what about your emotional health? Are you taking a look at that in a more critical way? What about your surroundings? Are there people around you who are not just kind of taking from you all the time, but also pouring into you from a social support kind of standpoint? And also looking at the big picture of this and saying, is there balance? I think that's one key tip or starting point that we talk about a lot. That's so important. And I feel like what you've shared is kind of like an ongoing thread that I think a lot of our listeners would also appreciate because it's something that we can all think about, whether we're teens, whether we're kids, whether we're adults, whether we're athletes, whether we're celebrities, is how to find that balance in our lives and how to kind of take care of ourselves in an ongoing way. I'm wondering also just to add to that, what do you share with them about some of the in the moment blips that come up, like pregame jitters or nerves and how to handle those things? Because I bet that some of those tips might help before a big test or before a presentation too, right? Anything where you feel like you're about to perform. Absolutely. And sometimes the tips that we talk about there, for example, classically, right? Some people will say that Jordan is the goat, right? It's considered like the greatest of all time from an NBA standpoint. Some people debate that maybe LeBron, if you're on the younger folks. So we'll always look for that, I guess, in the comment section. But one of the things Michael used to always talk about is sort of envisioning game time pressure. So the idea of practice, right, is for an athlete, you go through a basic routine, like I'm shooting free throws earlier today to really work on my form. Mm -hmm. You go through the basic mechanics, right? Is that how your wrist does a certain movement or how your follow through? But in a very similar way, there's a way that you can go through emotional mechanics as well. It's taking a second mm -hmm. to sort of place yourself in that situation. Say, I'm going to be nervous. What's going to happen? A crowd is going to say something to me. Um, it's going to be the first time I experience something. What's it going to be like when someone heckles me? What's it going to be like when an opponent tries to get under, mm -hmm. under my skin? 
So it's not perfect. It doesn't simulate it 100% by any means, but taking some time to put your mind in practice mode, in addition to putting your body in practice mode, just like you're saying, can help you, whether it's a big test or a big performance or a speech or whatever, to begin in your mind's eye to visualize that situation, walk yourself through it. Okay, I'm going to be nervous. Why am I going to be nervous? Because I'm afraid that someone is going to judge the way I speak or criticize how I pronounce something or going through some of these scenarios and letting them get disarmed in your mind a bit, letting them play out and say, you know what? This is not the most terrifying thing in the world. I'm going to give a speech, for example, which is the right, the number one phobia in America. It's more than death and taxes and sharks. Yeah. But there's a way that you can begin to disarm that fear or that anxiety or that phobia by having the mental practice and the mental mechanics to go along with it. Put your mind in practice mode. I love that. Beyond the pressures on the basketball court, it seems like expectations from coaches and fans and even their teammates are another source of stress for professional athletes. Can you talk a little bit about what you tell players about dealing with those expectations and then tie that back into how high school athletes can use those same strategies to handle stress from their coaches or parents or their peers? Totally. So sometimes I try to think of particular examples, as I mentioned to you, so maybe Jordan being one. When it comes to pressure and expectations, there is not a better example that I speak about with athletes than Jeremy Lin. For those maybe who are not familiar with the Lin Sanity era, here is this short, not short, I mean short for NBA players. He was like six one, right? Chinese-American player who went to Harvard. People just looked at him as some nerd who didn't think he could play basketball. And he talks about transitioning from being the last guy on the bench to being on the cover of every major paper in the country because he was a phenomenon. And one of the things that were different that he talks about, that he handled differently, is playing for an audience of one, not playing for an audience of 10,000 or not playing for an audience of the coach or your mom or all these people around you that expect you to be great, really playing for you and that you will focus on being the best that you can be. Because realistically, I think this is what people come to realize is that it's hard to know everybody's expectation. It's hard to please everybody, right? Like there's that famous, I think it was a meme, right? You're not Nutella, right? You're not pleasing everybody, okay? <laughs> Only Nutella will have the universal appeal that we're going for. So for someone like Jeremy Lin, who was last guy on the bench to global superstar, this shift in saying that when I focus on being the best that I am, using my craft and my gifts to the best of my ability, that in turn just naturally becomes a way to please your coach, comes a way to please those around you who want you to be great. Can only come as a byproduct and not as a goal. And this is the mindset shift that I try to help either an athlete or even a young person, is that if you have the goal of pleasing and impressing everybody, you're gonna really struggle with it. But if you have the goal of pleasing and being true to yourself, you will find a byproduct of people around you being impressed by who you really are. That simple mindset shift that you just described sounds again simple but so powerful i mean i'm picturing it right now and kind of taking myself through the exercise having heard the story you just shared and i can see how it might make a difference i can also see how it probably takes practice over time that shift doesn't yeah. happen overnight even if it is a simple one but when it does i think the more that we can practice it over and over again the more it'll start replacing the narrative in our minds where we're looking for affirmation of others and performing for our moms and strangers and friends and peers. That's really interesting. It's definitely an opportunity to kind of reflect and do things differently for everybody. I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about stigma. 
I wonder why historically there's been so much stigma when it comes to mental health. And I say historically because I do think that's changing, which you mentioned before. But first, what do you think about all that? Let's unpack this a little bit. Yeah, I think for a couple of reasons. Well, I'd say historically, first, there is this expectation that the athlete is above weaknesses that I have. There is this understanding is that the athlete that I'm watching on television can definitely do things that I can't do. If you look at marketing in the 90s, we won't want to be like Mike, right? Want to be like Michael Jordan because he is superhuman. He does stuff that I can't do. So this separation to go beyond a human is created part of this sort of unrealistic expectation on the athlete. But then when you go to the next level, part of it, like I mentioned, is this fear of being vulnerable because if you're not the starter and you're literally competing for a job, like I had a really nice conversation with the medical director for the NFL Players Association, and he mentioned this dynamic that happens both in the NFL as well as for the NBA. You have guys who are competing for a job and Mm -hmm. to want to show that, hey, I'm actually disabled in a way or impaired in a way or not perfectly ready in every moment in a way, it begins to threaten your job security. If you and I call, you know, have a sick day at work, right? No one's going to fire us, (laughs) hopefully. But if you're an NBA player and there's this feeling of like you're sick or an NFL player and this feeling that you're fragile or not dependable or, you know, not performing at hundred percent, it begins to threaten job security. And part of it, I think it's topic we'll talk about more probably later as well is the understanding of what it means to be a man, right? Quote, yeah. Like you're a man, you're above this kind of stuff. So it's a couple of these things all together. And kind of that image that you think that you need to project because of what society says. You know, now it seems as though, luckily, there's been a cultural shift in how professional athletes think about mental health. And I really see that reducing stigma for future generations. We see Michael Phelps is one of the first high profile athletes to just talk about mental health openly and More recently, Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles, Marty Mm -hmm. Fish, they've all been super transparent about sports and about their own mental health challenges. I'd love to hear what you know about what the NBA, NFL, U.S. tennis, and maybe any other sports institutions are doing internally around mental health stigma. I mean, are they talking about it openly? Are they starting to take steps to support players? Give us a sneak peek as much as you can about what's going on behind the scenes as far as you know. Sure. And I'd like to start just like you're acknowledging here is that this change, this wave of change is happening because it's all athlete driven, because the athletes didn't wait for the ownership group. They didn't wait for the coaching staff. They realized nobody's coming unless you sort of make the world stop, which is really what someone like Naomi Osaka coming out of a tournament and say, you guys got to stop. We have to stop and pause and really think. So they really underscored that this is not just something that's like cute to do. And I think this was in the first iteration of all these wellness initiatives, both for the NBA is the reason I even, maybe I should backtrack to this. The reason I even got into this whole NBA conversation is I wanted to just write an article. A friend of mine, we were like, hey, you know what? Let's look, do a deep dive and say, what are they doing? We love these guys. We idolized them growing up. I had sports posters all up in my room. So I feel like I'm connected to these athletes, even though, you know, I'm not always their best friend per se. But that curiosity led me to say, you know what, in the first iteration, all there was is it seemed to be like a necessary, you know, when we do sort of a random corporate training in a hospital that says, okay, everybody now do this thing that we're required to do. It seemed like it was more of a requirement. Okay, we're going to talk about mental health. 
And then it began to shift to say, hey, no, listen, we're going to make this a requirement that every team across the league has to have someone on staff. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then it grew a little bit. Okay. Somebody there on staff. But then we're going to make it a little bit more, there are more restrictions or in terms of expectations around what kind of person should be on staff, what should be available. So right now, it's not just that the team has a clinician on their staff, but there's also a network of people. If you don't want to see somebody on the team, Mm -hmm. in addition to having regular events to talk about the importance of this and to say, we're all sort of in this together. The Players Association for, I know I can speak to at least for the NFL as well as for the NBA, have been really proactive about this with Michelle Roberts at the helm for the NBA, working with the players of saying that if we don't tackle this, it's not sustainable for our athletes. So that's why over time, what I've seen over the past couple of years, is this going from sort of a, a formality to something that is as important as having, you have a team doctor, you have somebody who's going to help people stretch. This is an essential part of what it means to have a team. That's incredible. It sounds like it started off as something very player led and then the systems and support around them started stepping up and then starting off as a formality, but then really moving towards taking real action that's meaningful. It's similar to what I'm seeing with the current teen generation. Teens are saying, I don't care if my parents didn't want to talk about mental health. I want to share. I want to talk about it. I want to be open with it. I want to seek help. I want to look out for my friends and peers. And now we're seeing early inklings of school systems and other organizations and supports around teen worlds start to say, huh, maybe Mm. we should start kind of taking some steps and making changes. It's all really interesting. I think sports is a interesting model for that. Definitely. And it really speaks to how a lot of times the most fundamental or the most lasting changes kind of grassroots stuff. So when it comes to the teens kind of speaking up for themselves and saying, this is what I need. This is what I'm feeling. Hear me out, right? Stop ignoring me. That really goes a long way. I totally agree. Studies show that stigma is one of the top perceived barriers to seeking help when it comes to student-athlete mental health. Some of the other notable barriers are a lack of mental health literacy and negative past experiences when seeking help. So how can parents and coaches of competitive, collegiate, or even high school sports athletes help teens overcome these barriers and support prioritizing mental health? Yeah, that's a great question. Because you're right there. The stigma part is really the beginning part of the story. And as that's changing for us as a culture of saying, you know what? No, it's okay for me to seek help. One of the things I've really come to learn from teens, both in the treatment as well as on social media, is this past negative experience thing is a big deal. So for us as a profession, we have to sort of humbly begin to admit and say, yes, we're lowering stigma. Yes, we're advocating that people get care. But sometimes, I'm sorry, care is not great. And we have to sort of own that. And because of that, what I sort of guide friends or patients, parents of collegiate athletes to say, unfortunately, we have to be very selective and cautious about this process whenever we can. I know sometimes we're in a crisis and what can we do, right? We go to a local ER and that's the best that we can find. But because care can vary and because in reality, things can really go either way because doctors are human, therapists are human. Some are fantastic. Some are less than fantastic. So if we're able to be proactive and look a little bit, and I was just talking with a group the other day about this, put it on a more organized and structured way, the benefit of seeking care when you're not in crisis is so huge so that you can sit down, you can talk to the therapist beforehand and talk about, well, what's important to me as a young person? Do you value this? Do you see the world the same way I do? Or 
Do you not respect my point of view? If you don't, then maybe this is not the best therapy relationship. But it will take time to be able to do that when you're not in the middle of just life falling apart. So that's why I would say one of the key things from a literacy standpoint is knowing that sometimes care can vary, knowing that treatment takes a little bit of time, so it's good to be proactive about it and not wait until we're in crisis, and that this is very much an art kind of process. And because it's an art, we want to be able to give ourselves the ability to get to know somebody, maybe via phone call or even the first session and evaluate whether or not it's the best fit for us and give ourselves license to do that. It's not that if I had a bad experience, you know, with one therapist doesn't mean that therapy stinks. It just means that maybe this is kind of like dating, right? Young people date all the time. And when you get your heart broken, when you're a teen, you don't swear off dating for the most part. You just realize, well, I got to make some different choices next time. Definitely. And is there anything that pro athletes have shared with you in terms of things that they wish they knew or had practiced earlier when it came to their mental health? And are there any lessons we can take from that? Yeah, that's a great question. Because as athletes reflect and kind of think, and this is also to Dr. Chowdhury's point earlier about sometimes the narrative that you've had currently, it's not complicated to say, well, it shouldn't be this way, it should be that way. But it took you years to build up your current perspective. So what they sometimes share with me in terms of what they wish they knew, the same way, for example, there are some professionals over the years who have learned to shoot the ball in the NBA in a weird way, right? <laughs> Lonzo Ball, people sort of talk about him or Rick Barry or some others. And Lonzo Ball being one particular example of an active player who shot the ball in one particular way for many, many years. And in order for him just to change his form, the way he shoots the ball, it took time, consistency, and coaching. The same way for us emotionally. If you're an athlete, one of the things they say to me is, I wish I knew that in order for me to change the way I think about myself, the way I view my own value, my own worth, my own surroundings, doesn't change overnight. So if I knew this sort of when I was 14, and I can steadily, consistently, day by day, chip away at the, you know, flawed way of looking at myself and build a healthier perception about myself, the earlier I start, even when I'm not in perceived crisis, the better it would have been. It's sort of like working on your fundamentals, like working on your dribbling, like working on your jump shot. You're going to be working on it forever. So the earlier you start really honing in on those skills, the better. It's a great lesson. I think it it applies to everybody for everything. It seems like any skill that you want to hone, the earlier you start, the better. But I think it's especially relevant when it comes to mental health. Mm. So as I mentioned in the opening, June is Men's Health Month, and that includes mental health. In my experience as a psychiatrist, many of the boys that I've worked with have shared that it was tough for them to talk about mental health at first. But once they started doing it, it felt really, really good. And some of the initial hesitation that they've shared was because of these old cultural norms and expectations. And those are really starting to change. I think we need to start talking more about boys and mental health and men's mental health. So I really wanted to ask you, what do you think are the top mental health issues facing men and boys today? And how have you been thinking about it? Mm. Maybe we need an addition to men's mental health month, we need like boys mental health month, because we're sometimes starting with just grown adult men is missing the boat. That's why being child psychiatrist exactly. is amazing. Just talked about starting early too, right? <laughs> okay, that's right. Right. The earlier, the better. Should advocate uh, for that. Boys Mental Health Month. Boys Mental Health Month. There you go. We just thought of an idea. It could be July or something. We got June is for everybody else. We got <laughs> July for, for the young boys. Because just like you're saying, I think this idea of once we almost give a boy the license <laughs> to be able to speak and to express and that it's not 
girly or it's not something that's looked down on or it's not doesn't make you any less of who you already are they're eager to and they have a lot to say and there are a lot of thoughts so one of the things i see both from like a boys into young adults kind of perspective is just how long it takes to break that initial barrier down that door of saying no i can come in we know from statistics from nami for example that sometimes the time it takes for someone to reach care from the point of initially having symptoms can be up to 11 years, which is like staggering. So from what I'm seeing, one of the bigger, and I just, we actually just had to talk about this last week for all these statistics, right? Like men being four times as likely to die by suicide than women. And that also doesn't start randomly when they're 40, right? There are all these roots when they're boys. So the barrier for me that I've seen is allowing boys to understand that this is a natural place for them. Like emotional intelligence does not discriminate against any gender. Emotional health is for everybody. Yeah. And then after that, in terms of what specifically we see, I think depression, because the way it looks can be a bit different in boys and men, because it's not always just sadness and crying. You know, I actually was speaking with a young boy, an adolescent in an emergency room recently, and he was saying to me, like, I'm not depressed. I haven't cried in years. I said, well, there's more to it than that. So from an education standpoint, understanding that sometimes our symptoms as young men, young boys, the way we can behave when we're depressed is more about being irritable, more about acting out, more about lashing out at people, having a short fuse. So from like an educational standpoint, I guess, seeing how these things look differently in boys and men. Totally. And even gender aside, I think for teens, some of what I'm seeing in my practice is lack of motivation. Not caring, not feeling interested in stuff that they like, not feeling motivated when it comes to things that that used to kind of get them excited. That's one of the big symptoms that Mm -hmm. I'm seeing, aside from what you said, which is this classic idea that a lot of us have about depression, meaning only being sad and crying all the time. Mm -hmm. No, that's on point. The lack of motivation piece, it hits so hard, especially because, as we also know, right, what we sometimes see is when you're young and you don't feel great, or this can happen when you're older, you don't feel great too. You try to make yourself feel better with some other things. And some of the other things can sort of contribute to feeling even less and less motivated. And you feel, you sort of get caught in this loop of saying, why do I not want to do the things that I used to love doing? Right? It's like a mystery. It's like, I'm not sad, but I don't want to do anything. Yeah, definitely. And you recently shared a TikTok video where you shared the four foundations of men's mental health. Would you mind sharing those with our audience and talk about how teen boys can apply these principles to their lives? Definitely. Yeah. Thanks for checking out our TikTok. Always appreciate that. And I hope I can remember the four S's there that we were talking about. One was surroundings and surroundings being there was this classic saying of like, tell me who your friends are and I'll tell you who you are. We don't get to choose our family, but we get to choose our friends. So sometimes being intentional about the friends in your life and how good of a friend you're being, because friendship is reciprocal, it's not just one way. So knowing that this has a significant impact on your mental health, this goes for real life friendship, as well as it goes to, you know, since we're talking about social media, your newsfeed, who are you following? Show me your Instagram, you know, newsfeed, and I'll tell you a lot about who you are and what you value, right? So your surroundings are key. Two is your stature, meaning not just are you tall or are you short, but really the basics of your physical body. One of the things I I talked about with a group of men recently was in a famous coach who was coaching at Duke all these sort of all-American athletes who are all going to go to the NBA. You know, the first thing he did in practice, the first day of practice, 
He didn't teach them how to dunk really fancy. He didn't show them how to do a 360. He showed them how to tie their shoes. But and these guys are, yeah. And these guys are just like, come on, coach. Like, come on, we're 19. We're like recruited to be on Sports Illustrated. He said, no, that's fine. But if you don't do the fundamentals well, nothing else matters. And our stature, our physical body, what yeah. we're eating, right? If we're eating healthy, if we're eating McDonald's 15 times a day, which a lot of my teams I'm seeing, like, hey guys, like this has an impact. Are we sleeping adequately? All these things that are easy, tying your shoes, basic type stuff, but they impact you significantly. Yeah. The last two, one is your soul, because for us, a lot of mental health research has just shown whatever practice that you do, whether it's meditation or just understanding sort of your inward self in some way has an impact because that's something that is meaningful and relevant for you. And the lastly, the last S, it's a P, but it, you know, the P is silent, touches your psyche, your thoughts, the story that you tell yourself about yourself and about the world. And there's a quote that I like that, which is, our thoughts determine our lives, right? So if we look critically at our thoughts and the story we tell ourselves and, you know, on TikTok, for example, you're able to post a video, but have a different sound of somebody narrating, right? So who's the narrator in your life? Who's narrating your story, right? Is that person narrating and saying, ah, Mina's really just, he can try, but he's a failure. He's doing this, but he's no good. So changing that inner narrator over time is a key part to our health too. I love these tips. I want to go digging through your TikTok and all the other videos. I feel like they just make you stop and reflect and think. Thank you. I'm curious. I want to come back to one thing you said about our bodies. Have you worked with athletes that have struggled with body image or needing to maintain a certain mm -hmm. image and maybe comparing themselves to others? I'm wondering how that showed up in this particular population. One of the misconceptions that people have is that this is something that only happens with some athletes, you know, more predominantly in one particular sport or another, or one gender over another. For example, there was a lot of conversation over the past NBA playoffs about the Miami Heat having a culture where they would literally test your body fat as a player and say, well, okay, your body fat is too high. Like you're, you're fat. Like you're, oh, this wow. is not going to work. Yeah. So it's a kind of pressure there to be in such incredible shape. You're not a model, you're a ball player. You could be playing ball in all kinds of shapes and figures, so to speak. But so the athletes in different sports, whether it's the NBA or the NFL or gymnastics or others, they do feel that pressure. And we can look at them and say, well, I'm, I'm sure they're handling it well because these guys are usually in pretty good shape, but the scale is a little bit different. They're not comparing themselves to me. Like I'm, I'm not their standard. But it's the other guy that you see in the locker room that's like, man, I wonder if he's going to have that contract extension partially because he's in like much better shape than I am, right? So it begins to have them think about, again, their job security, their sustenance, their ability to provide, not just, am I going to be able to get more dates? That's not always on their mind, but that part has been interesting for me is to see that even athletes who seem to be immune from this, that's a misconception that we sometimes have is that this is a thought on on many of their minds. Wow. So it's not just the rest of us. What do you, what do you tell them? How do you help them kind of work through that? So it's similar in the sense, as far as we were saying with play performance, is that sometimes you can have some motivation, competitive sports or competitive sports, right? So if somebody's, yeah. you know, motivating you to work a little bit harder, notoriously, the stories always go back to Kobe Bryant and being sort of the, the mamba. There was this one great story of him telling another 
player, like you're never going to outwork me. Like you could be yeah. the worst or the best guy, but you will never outwork me. So competition is, is fine in that regard that it can push you. But the other part that we take a step back on as well is that who are you competing against? It's still not about you competing against these other guys. You really want to bring it back to competing almost in a way with yourself. You want to push yourself harder for your own benefit. You want to be in better shape perhaps or have a particular goal. But it's not about you looking at the next sign. It's more about you for your own self of saying the core narrative again, like the narrator story in your mind is I'm good enough. I belong here. I have a place and this is, but the way that I can continue to sort of be faithful to my craft is to do it in this way. But there's a big shift that has to come in the way we look at it. It seems like a lot of roads lead back to that shift, right? To that narrative, to what we tell ourselves, to how we see ourselves, to who we're doing all of the work for. Definitely. And that's why a lot of the conversations that I have with guys is just like it takes sometimes a coach to tell you, hey, like I see that you think you're playing perfectly, but a coach can, an external pair of eyes that can tell you, you need to work on this thing mm-hmm. and you need to put in practice in this particular way. And here's how to do it is so valuable. So these sort of emotional habits that we built over time or these emotional mechanics or things that have been stuck in a while sometimes are hard to notice unless somebody points them out to you in your life and you're willing to say, all right, I'm going to work with a coach now step-by-step to change this. Dr. Mirholm, thank you so much for speaking with us today. I think we had a really constructive conversation that'll help a lot of teens. Before we go, Mina, do you have any advice for teens who are listening? Yeah, I would say, well, first, thank you so much for having me and for the teens who are listening. The first piece of advice is it's amazing that you're listening and that you're proactive about your health in this way to say that this is something I can invest in. And the biggest thing I'd want you to walk away with is because athletes, millionaires, fancy schmancy people can prioritize their emotional health and be proactive about it, you and I can do the same too. It doesn't have to mean that we're a crisis. It doesn't have to mean that we're less than anyone or that there's something wrong with us in any particular way. But in a way, this is prevention. This is us about becoming healthy, not just avoiding being sick. So I encourage you to continue to do what you're doing, which is to become more healthy. And I'm so grateful for a platform like this that can help you reach that goal. Dr. Merham, thank you so much for spending time with us. It was really great to hear all of your pearls of wisdom and to also get a look behind the scenes of men's mental health and sports and mental health. Until next time, this is Dr. Neha Chaudhary reminding you to keep being you.